Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, as always, we want to ask your presence to join us and lighten our minds, to draw us closer to you. But at this time, we also want to lift up this nation in the world and ask that what's happening in the world right now be that you have your hand over it. And uh, not everything in this world is good, but you've promised for those that love you that you can bring good out of everything. And we pray that you will use what's happening in the world right now to turn hearts and minds to ask the deeper questions, the bigger questions. What's happening in the great controversy? What's happening uh, for, for our eternal life and, and, and empower your agents around the world to be able to communicate an effective message of your kingdom so that hearts and minds can be drawn to you at this time. We, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So let's do our lesson number 13 in Daniel, and it's called From Dust to Stars. And the memory verse is from Daniel 12, 3. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And I thought, well, what does this text mean? What does it mean to, to, that the wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament? Well, remember, Jesus is, uh, is uh, called the light of the world. The light of the world. It's a light is a metaphor for truth. So the, these, uh, the wise are going to shine bright. I'm going to suggest brightness of, of truth. But they say they're wise. So what would the wisdom be that shines bright? Truth, wisdom about about God, about his character, methods, principles, would it also include his design laws? I will tell you, if you've been raised a Seventh-day Adventist, that idea came to me this morning, that if, we just, if you just take every one of the fundamental beliefs and reprocess them through design law, you will see in a completely different, powerful picture because one of the, my view is the problem is nothing wrong with any of the individual beliefs. They're all fine, except they're processed through imposed law. So they all t- lead you back to the, the point that God functions like an imperial dictator, which misrepresents his government and his character. So I challenge, just, just do that as a mental exercise sometime. So Jesus, so I think this leads to wisdom. What about the idea that the righteous will be like stars forever? Well, did you know when Lucifer rebelled, he wanted to set himself up above the stars of God? It says uh, Isaiah 14, 13, to, and 14, it says, For you have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. And I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, the farthest sides of the north. Uh, I will ascend above the heights of clouds, I will be like the most high. Did Lucifer want to rise above, like, celestial orbs? No, the of God. So when he talks about the stars of God, what's he wanting to rise above? Created intelligences. In created intelligences to rule over. This is what it means. We, but we are going to be shining, those who turn people to righteousness, be like shine um, like the stars forever and ever. Stars are bodies that think about this. At nighttime, when the sun isn't shining, in the darkness, stars give light. We are to be stars that give light in the darkness of the world. This is a, an historical quote out of a book called Prophets and Kings. Think, see what you think. Among the earth's inhabitants, scattered in every land, there are those who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Who's Baal? Do you remember who Baal was historically? The attributes of the Mesopotamian god Baal. Baal was the son of El, 
So El is the father, God. Baal is the son, God. S-U-N. No, excuse me, S-O-N, son, God. The son of El. As in Elohim, El Shaddai. That El comes up in lots of things. Maybe you've read some comic books about Cal El. He became Superman. Yeah, so this L comes up a lot. Jor L was Cal El's father. Anyway, he was the son of El, who was the god of creation, the god of weather, the god who brought rain, the god who brought the harvest. And Baal, in the Mesopotamian god, he would fight against the great Leviathan, the serpent. And he would fight against the god of death, who was Moat. And in his battle against death, uh, a Moat, the god of death, Baal dies and rises again to bring life to the people. Now, what is wrong with worshiping a god who is the son of the creator, heavenly father, who is the the God who fights against the the serpent for us, who is the God who dies and rises again, and also the creator who brings life. What's wrong with worshiping him? But what made him false? No power. Baal required some offering to be brought to him. If you didn't bring offering, Baal would punish. You only got blessed if you present an offering. The offering of a blood sacrifice. Baal became, God of thunder, Zeus to the Greeks. Jupiter to the Romans. Thor to the Norse people. And Jesus to Christians who worship a God who is the son of the father, who fights the serpent, who dies and rises again, and then offers the blood of a human sacrifice to God so he won't hurt us. This is Baal worship. This is why Elijah came, and he came to call the people. If God is like Baal, worship him. If God is like Yahweh, worship him. And that's why Malachi says, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, the prophet Elijah must come again. We are called to call people back to worship the creator and stop worshiping this imperial dictator faker that claims all of these characteristics but in his core he functions like a human caesar and in order to be just he must punish sin so anyway among the inhabitants of the earth and every land there are those who have not bowed the knee to baal in every land who have not done it notice the next like the stars of heaven which appear only at night these faithful ones will shine forth when darkness covers the earth and gross darkness the people in heathen Africa, in Catholic lands of Europe and of South America, in China, in India, in the islands of the sea, and in all dark corners of the earth. God has in reserve a firmament of chosen ones that will shine forth amidst the darkness, revealing clearly to an apostate world the transforming power of obedience to his law. What law do you think that is? It's design law. See, did the Pharisees who crucify Christ want him down to obey Sabbath law? Did it transform them into godly people? No, it transformed them into something else because they were obeying imperial law, not design law. This is another quote. Council's Church, page 98. Christ dispatches his messengers to every part of his dominion to communicate his will to his servants. He walks in the midst of his churches. This is a playing on the on the chapters of the first chapters of Revelation where Jesus walks among the churches. He desires to sanctify, elevate, and ennoble his followers. The influence of those who believe in him will be 
in the world a savor of life unto life. Now no, notice, Christ holds the stars in his right hand. Again, metaphor of what's happening in Revelation. But he holds the stars. Now who are the stars? His intelligent children, yes. He holds the stars in his right hands, and it is his purpose to let his light shine forth through them to the world. Thus, he desires to prepare his people for higher service in the church above. He has given us a great work to do. Let us do it faithfully. Let us show forth in our lives what divine grace can do for humanity. So those who turn people to righteousness will be like stars forever and ever. Think about the exciting of that. Yeah. All right, Sunday's lesson focuses a uh, lesson on Michael. Yes. Just add Job 38. At yes. Creation, all the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. Yes, yeah, exactly correct. And I love that text because it lets you know there was intelligences before man, before earth was created. So it focuses on the lesson of Michael, and the question is, who is Michael? Jehovah Witnesses teach that Michael is Jesus and that Michael is a created being and not fully God. God created Michael, and Michael did purposes, but he's not. And and Michael is Jesus, and therefore Jesus is a created being. Uh, Many evangelical Christians believe Michael is merely an archangel, no different than Gabriel, a created being, and reject the idea that Michael is Jesus. There's a third option, that Michael is Jesus in his pre-incarnate form, and that Jesus is fully God, pre-existent, with life original, unborrowed, and underived. Not a created being. Let's examine quickly what the Bible says and see which view is most consistent with the Bible. You know, 1 Timothy 6.16 said God lives in unapproachable light. We just talked about light's a metaphor for truth. Well, who would this be unapproachable by? Well, God is an infinite being, infinite. So he has infinite knowledge, infinite truth. Can a finite mind assimilate infinity? So it's unapproachable by us. We can't approach it. This is God. So if God, who is love, wants the closest intimacy with his creation, and we can't enter into infinity, what will need to happen? A member of infinity will have to exit infinity and enter linear existence, how we live, from one moment to the next, on our plane of existence to interface with us so we have the closest relationship. That member of the Godhead... So let me ask you, you tell me. So remember the Godhead leaves. Who is the member of the Godhead that the Bible tells us is the go-between, the mediator, the intercessor, the ladder that Jacob saw, the ladder that Jesus referred to, the angels going up and down, connecting heaven to earth, the vine, the, the, the way, the gate. Who is that member? Jesus is that member. Did Jesus become actually the connecting link between God and his creation only after his incarnation? Or was he the connecting link from infinity to finite beings even before his incarnation on earth? So let's look at some Bible texts now. See if we can make the case. Exodus chapter 3, 2 through 6. You can also read the same thing in Acts 7, 30 through 38. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire and did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over, God called to him from within the bush. Remember, it just said the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire within the bush. 
The Lord called to, God called him from within the bush. Moses, here I am. Uh, Moses said, uh, don't come closer, God said. Take off your sandals. The place you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So who is the God here? The angel who's within the bush. Well, let's, let's see if we can add to that. Judges, chapter 13, 12 to 20, uh, chapter 13, verses 16 to 22. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, notice what the angel of the Lord says now. I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land that I, I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Who brought Israel out of Egypt? Who promised the land to Abraham and his descendants? And who made a covenant that he would never break? Was it a a created being? Or was that God? So the angel of the Lord is the one who is, in this text, God. Manoah and his uh, wife uh, respond and ask this. What is your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? And the angel of the Lord replied, why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. Pause right there. Why? Why didn't the angel of the Lord say, Gabriel or Michael, if he's just a created being an angel? What do you think it means it's beyond understanding? Well, in the Bible, what does name represent? Character. God is infinite. Can you know fully the complete an infinite character of God. Can you know it? Can you name it? So his name would represent his infinite self and is beyond finite beings' understanding. Does the Bible reveal anywhere that Jesus, in fact, is the one with a name beyond understanding? Yes. Yes, it does. Revelation 19, 11, and 12. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Who is that referring to? Rider on the white horse. Jesus, with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Why does no one know it? You can't pronounce it? It's just it's just unpronounceable. It's because it's his full, infinite self. We can't process it. It's beyond our full knowledge. The Bible gives us many pieces of that. And if you read down through the rest of the passage in Judges, at the end, uh, it's, uh, Manoah says to his wife, we have seen God. So far, so, do we have biblical evidence that the term angel of the Lord can in fact refer to Jesus? Now the next question is, well, what about Michael then? Angel, that didn't say it was Michael, just says the angel of the Lord. Is Michael the, actually then Jesus, the angel of the Lord, or some other incarnate angel? Jesus says, John 5, 28, I tell you the truth, the time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice, the voice of the Son of Man, and come out. So according to Jesus, whose voice raises the dead? His voice raises the dead. Paul says in Thessalonians, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then in Jude 9, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring slanderous accusation against him. So 
There we can put together that the voice of Jesus is the voice of the archangel and Michael's the archangel who raised Moses. That would make him Jesus. But other, other elements we can add in. In Daniel 10.21, Gabriel talking to Daniel refers to Michael as, quote, your prince. Michael, your prince. And in Daniel 12.1, Michael is called the great prince. Is there any prince of heaven who became a human prince and became the king of the Jews, ultimately become the king of kings? Was there any being that, that fit all those roles? And who would that be? Michael? Yes, it would be Jesus, Michael. So we can again make the case there. When you put the pieces together, I think we can make a strong case that Michael does in fact refer, uh, which means who is like God, asking the question, who is like God, because that was the question. And I'm here to reveal the answer. Who's like God? Michael, who's like God? Look at me, you'll know. And Michael was God, uh, Jesus in his pre-incarnate form, but we must always ensure that we insist that people understand because of what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, it leads people to misunderstand what we're saying. We always insist that Jesus in his pre-incarnate form is fully God, pre-existent, with life original, unborrowed, and underived. He is not a created being. He is fully God. The lesson points out that Michael acts as a military leader to protect his people. According to the Bible, 2 Corinthians 10 and other places, 3 through 5, what kind of war are we in? What kind of war? Where's the, where's the battlefield? In the hearts and minds of people. God's weapons demolish Satan's strongholds. What are the strongholds of Satan? What, what is it Satan gets a hold of that holds on to so strong? Lies, yes. Lies, fear, selfishness, and coercion, which come from the fear and selfishness, wanting to control to make yourself feel safe. So his stronghold is, is the lies first, but then in our own hearts, the fears that, he, that we, we experience and develop and hold on to that lead to self-protection, which will lead us to coerce other people. What is it that demolishes these strongholds? Truth demolishes lies. Love demolishes fear and selfishness. And freedom Liberty demolishes a desire to control. Truth, love, freedom. These are God's weapons. And Jesus said that he is the truth, the bread of heaven, the word made flesh. It is only through the truth Jesus brings that lies are dispelled and we are one to trust through receiving Christ into our hearts and thus he pours his love into our hearts and the fear and selfishness is displaced. So yes, Michael leads the forces of truth, love, and freedom to war against the forces of lies, selfishness, and coercion. Last paragraph in the lesson states, second, the verb stand also points to a judgment setting. Michael stands for his people. Uh, Also points to a judgment setting. Michael stands to act as an advocate in the heavenly tribunal. As the son of man, he comes before the ancient of days to represent God's people during the investigative judgment. Thus, Michael's rising or standing invokes a military and judicial aspects of his work. In other words, he is invested with the power to defeat God's enemies and with the authority to represent God's people in the heavenly tribunal. What law lens is uh, being used in this paragraph? (laughs) 
I mean, we should come back, understand. There are two lenses, there's two systems, there's two governments. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms of the world work on imperialism, rules over, which require judicial processes. God is the creator who builds reality. And when the system gets damaged, he is the healer to restore us back to his original design. Uh, Laws of nature, laws of uh, physics, these are the laws of God, as well as the moral laws. So, you can see that this is a description through the human law lens. If we acknowledge that stand in the text, in this verse, does include the idea of intercession, and Jesus is interceding for his people, how do we understand what that means through design law? Which way is he facing? Which way is he facing? I like where you're going with that. We just talked about a war. What kind of a war? Where's the war fought? And the lesson uh, refers to Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, there's a little horn power that's waging war and winning against the saints until God takes an action. The Ancient of Days makes an intervention. What does intervention does the Ancient of Days take? Thus, he gives judgment to the people in parts. Judgment, discernment, ability to tell lie from truth. This is what happens. They're winning, they're winning because the lies are being told and Christians are believing until the Ancient of Days stands up and judgment is given to the saints. Remember, Daniel 12 is a repetition of the same world. Great controversy prophecies that we had in the in the multi metal man and the and the multiple beast and the ram and the horn uh, uh, ram and the goat and so forth. It's just repeating again. So we're having the same processes just described in a different way. So Daniel twelve describes Michael standing up to intercede and deliver his people. According to Daniel seven, the little horn winning, and then suddenly something changes. God's people are able to break free from that power. Because they now have the ability to differentiate between the lies and the truth. According to Jesus, in Luke 17.20, where do we find the kingdom of God? Remember, they're winning war until power is given to the saints and they possess the kingdom. Is what the actual verse says. According to Jesus, where's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observations, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. So the the, the Ancient of Days is winning until, excuse me, the, the little horn is winning until the Ancient of Days stands up and judgment is given to the saints and they possess the kingdom. And the kingdom of God is within you. This is the same process as described in 2 Thessalonians 2 when the man of sin sets himself up in, notice, in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. What temple is that? Hearts and minds, the spirit temple. Thus, when the man of sin is displaced by the truth in our hearts and minds, the kingdom of God is established in our hearts. Our temples are being cleansed because God has given us discernment, judgment, ability. By How did he do this? By giving himself. The truth that Jesus reveals wins us to trust. And when we're one to trust in Jesus, what do we do with our hearts? We open them, don't we? He stands at the door and knocks, and we open them. And when Jesus comes in, because we trust him now, 
when we trust him and let him in, what happens in our hearts? He heals us. And if we refer to our, as the Bible does, you're a temple of, of the Lord, okay? What happens in your temple or your sanctuary at that time? It's being cleansed. That's exactly right. Do you see this as a legal process now or as a healing process? And this is how we see things through design law lens. I thought it might be helpful, though, to take some quotes often used by those who insist God's law functions like human law, and therefore they promote a penal legal theology and demonstrate that such quotes don't actually mean what they say. And we're going to go through uh, some that you might struggle with. And, and these are helpful when you uh, are talking to your friends in the, around the circle who say, yeah, but here's this quote. Okay, this, and this is out of um, Christ in his sanctuary, starting page 176. Jesus will appear as their advocate to plead in their behalf before God. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, 1 John 2, 1. For Christ is not entered into a holy place made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come to him, um, come unto God by him, See, seeing that he li- ever lives to make intercession for them. And you know the Bible quotes that were being quoted there. What law lens do you hear that through? If you come to the, 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 to the passage already believing that God's law, assuming, not even questioning, well, God's law works like human. You've got a system of laws. You break them. There has somebody has to be accountable. You have to punish people for it. There has to be a record kept. Somebody has to investigate that record. There has to be some legal payment made. That's the whole thing. That's how it works, people. If that's your premise before you read the text, then how will you hear this? But if you understand God is creator and his laws are the laws upon which reality are built, what does this actually mean? When you're reading this, do you bring other Bible texts to bear in on it? Do you, do you try to form a theology on one passage only? Or do you have a robust computer that brings in as much of the Bible and, 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 and inspired writings as you can bring? For instance, do you understand the 1 John 2.1 text, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Do you understand that? harmonized with Jesus' own words in John 16, 26, and 27, when he said, quote, I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you. Do you include Jesus' statement, he's not going to go and pray the Father for us? Do you include Romans 8, 31 through 34? Now listen to this one. If God is for us, who's for us? Who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Notice the next words. It is God who justifies. Is that what you normally teach, or is it Jesus' payment that justifies? It's God who justifies. Who is it that condemns Christ Jesus, who died? More than that, who was raised to life. Now notice this is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Did you hear intercession there? And who is interceding for us in this text? God God and Jesus, yeah, because this is also. What does the word also mean? That's right. In addition to. Did you include that text in the passage I read? Your mind automatically knew that. Boom. 
Because the text said Jesus will appear as their advocate to plead in their behalf before God. And this is what this text, God is for us. He's working for us. He's justifying us. And Jesus is also right there interceding for us. That's what's being described. In addition to God, we've got Jesus there helping us. That's a whole different picture than, man, I'm glad Jesus is there pleading to God because if he wasn't, God sure would lash out against us. Those are two different pictures. Imperialism misrepresents the Godhead. This is why it's important to have multiple data points. This is what's important to, to study and memorize scriptures so that we can bring it. When we read one, we can have all these other points bearing in on us. So the Bible, together we had Jesus along with the Father. So you can read the first John text in this way. If any man sin, we have an advocate along with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Are we so infected with the legal lie as a people that we misread quotes like this to present Satan's distortion about God? Keep on with the quote. As the books of record are opened in the judgment, the lives of all who have believed on Jesus come in review before God. What law, what law, what law lends? What do you hear? For what purpose? Why are they coming for review? Do you hear? This is a judicial legal process looking for whose sins have been legally stamped pardoned because they've claimed legal rights through the payment that Jesus has made. Is this is what you hear? Or do you hear they're being reviewed for diagnosis, triage, and remedial action? What do you hear? You see, diagnosis is a judgment. That's what it is. When a, when a doctor examines, think about this, you go into an examination room. You're being examined before the one who will pass judgment on the, what they find that's wrong. But when you're in the examination room with the doctor, you know, the doctor is not the one you need protection from. If he finds something wrong, he's your friend, advocate on your side. And not only that, not only is God for you, not only is he examining you to heal you, you also have Jesus right there with him. They've got a team now, team, a healthcare team working on your, on your behalf. Do you hear it this way? Or when we hear that things are coming, we just automatically hear this penal legal lie that the darkness covers the people, gross darkness. Do you see where God is wanting lights to shine? Let's keep on with the quote. Beginning with those who first lived upon the earth, our advocate presents the cases of each successive generation. Have you ever been in a medical um, uh, lecture? They present cases. Cases are being presented. Do you hear legal cases? Or do you hear condition, people with conditions? And we present the cases to find the solution to bring the healing. Uh, Advocate presents their cases of each successor generation and closing with the living. Every name is mentioned. Every case closely investigated. Names are accepted. Names rejected. How do you hear it? What law lens? In the medical field, we have to have consents to give treatment. That's right. When you not consent, then that treatment is not given or received. I love it. And so part of what's being examined in the records 
Who's given consent? Is there a consent here? Yes. Is there a consent for treatment? Informed that, consent. Informed consent is a big part of what's being investigated in the investigative judgment. Who is given consent for the heavenly doctor to fix the brokenness? Who's given consent? I love that. Names accepted, names rejected. Again, what law lends? In the Bible, what do names represent? Oh, characters are being accepted and characters are being rejected. What would cause, what would be the cause that as they investigate the character, what would cause some characters to be accepted and some characters, what would be the cause of that? Well, that one person, um, you know, they stole a penny in third grade and, and they forgot about it and they never asked forgiveness for it. So it, it, all, everything else was good, but there was a little penny they stole, never got legal pardon for it, never asked forgiveness for it. It stays on the record. They're condemned. Is that, is that what we're talking about here? Yeah. Is it some people have worked really, really hard to perfect their own characters? Is that what it means? They've worked really hard, and they've got a perfect character because they worked hard at it. Other people didn't work so hard. See, this idea is an Adventism. The idea, it's corrupt. That you work to, to perfect your own character. You receive by grace a new heart and right spirit. You're reborn. It's no longer you that live, but Christ lives in you. You have new motives and new desires. You don't work for a new character. You receive as a gift a new character. But what you work for after you have your new character is you work with God to overcome bad habits. Because your character doesn't like the habits that you have. But overcoming habits is not developing your character. Yes. Salvation by works in all religions except true religion. Right. What well, we work, you know, with faith without works is dead. There is the work of daily trust. There is the work of daily application. There's the work of partaking of Jesus. But it's like working you to partake your antibiotic, but the antibiotic actually does the work in you. So it's no longer, I don't do the work. God does the work in me. Okay. But I work to partake of what he does so that he'll do that in me. Yes. Psalms 139, 23, 24. Examine me, O God, and know my mind. Test me and know my thoughts. See whether I am on an evil path. Then lead me on the everlasting path. I love this. This is exactly right. Created me a clean heart, O God. Examine. Find what's wrong. Fix it in me. This is what you do when you go to the doctor. You know something's wrong. And you ask the doctor to examine you. Make a judgment. God will answer that prayer. He will. That's exactly right. But that's why Satan tries so hard to disconnect us from God. That's where he knows if we disconnect, we won't receive the healing. So he entertains us. He lies to us. He keeps us busy, even doing good things. Too busy to stay connected to God. Because he knows if we lose the connection, we've lost the download of, of God's mind and character. This is exactly right. That's, that's key. Just because you make a mistake, I've been taught that, okay, you're away from God. You've disconnected yourself with God. In the process of learning and growing, we are in an abiding relationship. So what, what you describe making the mistake, it's predicated through the behavior lens, the demerit lens, the checkmark lens. Yeah. Okay? If you actually understand the design law lens, metaphor. Metaphor, somebody's got bad pneumonia. Double, double both lungs, white out of their lungs. They're, they've got fevers, 106. Without intervention, they are on a path towards death. 
But they go to their doctor. Examine me, doc. The doc not only knows the hit, takes the history, but looks deep inside them with MRIs or X-rays or whatever, and auscultates their lungs and and, and takes biopsy, not biopsies, but samples, and looks under the microscope. They diagnose it. Judgment, judgment, diagnosis, and then the doctor gives sentence, which is a therapeutic plan. Here's your antibiotic. The patient begins to take the antibiotic. Are they, once they start the antibiotic, are they on the path of death or are they path of life now? They have just moved from path of death. This is when we accept Jesus as our Savior. We have moved from path of death to path of life. When they start their antibiotic, are all the fevers gone? Are all the sputum gone? In fact, as the antibiotic does its work, won't there be a period of time when they actually cough up more crud than before they started the antibiotic? Okay? This is what happens when we start the journey with Christ. We become more aware of our deficiencies, our shortcomings. We become more enlightened. We see more crud in our character. That does not mean we're getting worse. It means we're being healed. But if you have this one, oh, you just coughed up another chunk of porn. Well, I'm lost. I can't get over this. I'm, I'm hopeless. I accepted Jesus, and, and look what just happened. You see? Testify. Testify. There you go. All right, let's go on with the quote. Names accepted, names rejected. When any have sins remaining upon the books of heaven, unrepented of and unforgiven, their names will be blotted out of the book of life, and the record of their good deeds will be erased from the book of God's remembrance. You see why I'm reading this quote to you, going through it? This is a classic quote used by people who are stuck in imperial law lenses. And if you don't understand design law, you can get trapped in this stuff. No, this is easy stuff. If you think through it and go slowly through it, think about it. If, If we use the human law lens on that quote, though, then what this means is that Sins unrepented of, that, that the records are examined, looking for deeds, finding judicial findings, and if you have a, a legal payment, then you expunge the sin. If you don't have the payment, then you expunge the history of goodness, and the person's condemned. But if we understand design law, that the books actually have recorded in them characters, then we realize that sins remain in the record, as the quote said, unrepented of what does that mean to have sin unrepented of does that mean i forgot it and forgot to confess it and forgot to claim legal pardon is that what is that what it means it doesn't mean that unrepentance means that um, we haven't surrendered it out of the heart or you can turn it around the other way our heart has preferred it our heart has chosen it. It hasn't gotten out. It's not about historical acts to be admitted of. It's about sinful traits of character that the sinner wants, prefers, desires, embraces, values over the methods of God. It's not about historical deeds or acts in a ledger. It is about the condition of heart, mind, and character in reality. That's what it means. Because they're unrepented of. Not unconfessed, unrepented. My heart doesn't want to get rid of this. My heart loves this. And why do such people get blotted out of the book of life? 
because they have chosen to solidify their characters, in their characters, the law of sin and death. They're out of harmony with how God built life, and to them, God's presence would be torture. They would hate infinite truth, infinite love. It would torture them. And God will not torture people. That's why they're blotted out. That's why they're not going to be there. Continue on with the quote. All who have truly repented of sin and by faith claimed the blood of Christ as their atoning sacrifice have pardon entered against their names in the book of heaven. Are you seeing why we're going over this quote? <laughs> How do you understand that? And by the way, I'm pausing mid-sentence. I'm in the middle of a sentence for us to reflect and consider what's actually being said. The rest of the sentence will affirm our design law understanding. But I want to see if we can figure it out before we actually hear the rest of the sentence. What does it mean to truly repent? All those who truly repent of sin. What does it mean to truly repent? Is that a legal process in books or is true repentance a change of heart? True repentance, change of heart. What does claiming the blood of Jesus as our atoning sacrifice mean? Is it about red corpuscles? Or does blood represent symbolically the perfect sinless life of Jesus? The life is in the blood. What does atone mean? To be at one. The reconciling or unifying or bringing to one the perfect life of Jesus. All those who claim the perfect life of Jesus to be at one with God. Jesus sacrifices himself to provide sinless perfection, sinless, perfect human character to heal and restore all who trust God, to put his law back in our hearts and minds so that we can again be united or at one with God. This is what it means that we have been one to trust and accepted Jesus as our Savior. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. This is why Jesus said we must drink his blood. We must internalize his life. We must have a new life that's not the one we developed in fear and selfishness. It's the one he developed in perfect love. And when we do, we are restored to oneness, at one with God. So the same author, again, as you read these things, bring other resources to bear in your mind. The same author makes this very clear in the book Desire of Ages 762. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life. A perfect character. Why does the law require that? Seems awful, awful steep, awful severe. Because we have one in Jesus. Well, we do have one in Jesus, but why does the law require that we have one in Jesus? Same reason the law requires that we have to breathe. There you go. When you understand design law, the law requires you breathe. Well, that's, that's unfair. I shouldn't have to. That's awful arbitrary. No, it's how life is constructed and built by God to operate. Understanding design law, you understand there's no variance. You don't compromise. God does not change the law to meet a drowning man underwater. He doesn't change his law to meet a sinner in sin. What he does is he takes a drowning man and lifts them back up out of the water and puts them in harmony with the law. He takes sinners who are drowning in sin and lifts us up and puts us in harmony with the law. The law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law, but Christ coming to earth as man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift 
to God to pay for our legal payment. No, the free gift is offered to all who will receive them. The gift is offered to you, not to God. Baal, the gift is offered to God. Design law, Yahweh, God sent his son for God so loved the world. He gifted, gave his son to you. He offers it to all who receive them. His life stands for the life of men. Thus, they, see, he's, our, he's our, absolutely our substitute. He became the second Adam. He took the place of Adam as the head of this species. And he fixed the damage Adam inflicted upon us. So we're all quiet, but I'm saying, wow. <laughs> Thank you. Thus they have remission of sins that are passed through the legal payment made by Jesus. No, through the forbearance of God. The Bible teaches this in Romans. He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished through the forbearance of God. More than this, Christ imbues men with the attributes of God. He builds up the human character after the similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ. Now, notice this. God can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Did you notice that Christ's blood, his life becomes ours, and we're built up into his perfection? thus restored to oneness or at one with God, this is not legal. It's actual. Amen. It's actual. This is the 1880 message of righteousness by faith. By trust, you actually are actually transformed into a righteous being through the dwelling spirit who brings Christ into your heart. Amen. But it was rejected by leadership and they embraced the lie. Well, you're not righteous. You're declared to be legally righteous in the, in the transcripts and books of heaven, even though you're still not righteous. Let me finish. And did you notice that the author who just described that described that as just, doing what's just, and justifying? I mean, in other words, it's the right thing for our healing creator God to do, to act, in, to provide the remedy, and it's right to restore us to rightness, which is righteousness. Or justifying. That's what it is. Enable us to do what we can't do with that. That's right. And so then we listen. Now, listen, let's complete the sentence now. I, I broke in the middle of the sentence. We took a long pause. Let's complete the sentence. All who have truly repented, this is, uh, read the first half again so we get the whole, whole context of the sentence. All who have truly repented of sin and by faith claim the blood of Christ as their atoning sacrifice have pardon entered against their name in the books of heaven. As they have become partakers of the righteousness of Christ and their characters are found to be in harmony with the law of God, their sins will be blotted out and they themselves will be accounted worthy of eternal life. Do you see what's described here? This isn't legal. It's never been legal. I read the phrase forgiving iniquity in, in uh, Daniel here just, just this morning. And in order to help us escape the world of semantics, which it sounds like forgiving iniquity is sort of a declaration because iniquity includes selfishness and, you know, all those natural things that, that we seem to have. Can you help us with that? So when Jesus was on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. They were acting selfishly, abusively, wrongly. They were aggressively sinning. Was that a simple legal declaration? Or was that an act of a heart and a mind of an infinite God saying, I'm not holding this against you. 
because I don't need to hold it against you. Because sin is a condition of heart that damages the sinner. Every act of sin reacts upon the sinner. They were searing their conscience, hardening their hearts, and cutting themselves off from the So, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So, I don't see it as a legal declaration. I see it exactly as the heart of God saying, I forgive everyone. I don't hold this, I don't hold this against you. I'm not the source of your pain and suffering. In the same way, a doctor forgives a noncompliant patient. Why are the righteous accounted worthy of eternal life? Because they have partaken of the righteousness of Christ and their characters are restored to Christ's likeness. But it said, uh, God will blot out our sins. From where does God blot out sin? Brilliantly right. From hearts, minds, characters. Does God blot out historical facts from history books? This is what's taught in the penal legal lie. You will find rabidly insistent people who, when we get to heaven, the history of the righteous sins are gone. No one's going to know. We have amnesia. David and, and, and Bathsheba and Uriah and, uh, and Solomon will be there, but they have no idea who each other are. Because if they knew, they would know how Solomon came along. You can't know that. That would uh, remember some kind of sin. We can't remember that. It's, it's irrational as the day is long. And further, further, it creates a universe where sin can arise again. Because no one remembers. I'm going to skip on to another paragraph. This is while Jesus is pleading for the subjects of his grace, Satan accuses them before God as transgressors. What law lends? How many times, how, how conditioned have you been to envision a, a courtroom scene like this? God sitting up here in the, in the judge, judge's seat, have two tables over here. You, Jesus is standing beside you. Satan is over here and he's making allegation and Jesus stands up to plead your legal case. How many times has that been presented to you? It's all fraudulent. It's not, for, it, this is not what's being said. And even if you look at the Sanhedrin, it isn't even like the court of today. God set up a court system where every lawyer, every single one of them was trying to find you innocent. That was their, that what they're supposed to do. That's right. They were all supposed to be for you, trying to find evidence of your, not your guilt, but your, your innocence. That's right. Notice that both this passage and what we started out with, the very first sentence we started out with said, um, Jesus will appear as their advocate to plead on their behalf before God. And then down here it says, while Jesus is pleading for the subject of his grace, Satan accuses them before God. Jesus is pleading before the Father and the angels in heaven. The question, though, is to whom is he pleading? Okay. He's before them, but to whom is he pleading? Well, who do, uh, Satan is accusing Who's listening to Satan's accusations? Do you think God in heaven is going, wow, Satan is making a really compelling argument. Hey, son, um, do you have anything I, uh, that you can say that can compete with what Satan says? Because right now I think that he's making a really persuasive case, and I don't know if I can find uh, them, uh, can't, can avoid finding them guilty, but right now, you know, I'm at a loss at what to do. I need some help here, son. Do you think God is like listening to Satan and getting confused? No. And in fact, if you read the Bible carefully, you will discover that not even the angels in heaven listen to him anymore. Jesus said, the time has come for the prince of this world to be cast out. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto me. Not all men, all. 
And at the cross, Satan was exposed as a liar, fraud, and murderer. Up to the point of the cross, Satan still had angels in heaven considering, considering the issues. You see that in the book of Job in the Old Testament. But after the cross, the minds of the angels in heaven were settled. Satan's a liar and a fraud. And thus his movements were restricted to this earth after that. Not because God put a force shield around earth and Satan's trying to, can't get off earth. No, because every intelligence in the universe no longer listens to him, except human beings. That's why he's restricted to work here. So, Satan is accusing. Who's listening? God's not listening. Angels aren't listening. Let's keep on with the quote. The great deceiver has sought to lead the subjects of God's grace into skepticism to cause them to lose confidence in God, to separate themselves from his love and to break his law. So what are the accusations? Where are they they trying to have their work? In the hearts and minds of us who have taken the penicillin, who have taken Jesus, who have new hearts, who have, have been reborn, but we have deeply embedded bad habit patterns that we're still working to overcome. And sometimes we stumble and fall, and he's right on the scene to say, see, you're a loser. You know, he, he's already forgiven you for that seven times. Are you really going to go back again? How many haven't had that temptation come to them? It's, this is, he's accusing you to try and discourage you, to try and get you to not go to the, to lose your confidence in God and to separate yourself from his love. God never separates his love from you. The devil wants to trick you, so he's accusing you. He's the accuser of the brethren. Let's keep going with the quote. Jesus does not excuse their sins, but shows their penitence and faith. And claiming for them forgiveness, he lifts his wounded hands before the Father and the holy angels, saying, again, I'm pausing mid-sentence, what law lends you hearing that through? Does it say he's pleading to the Father? No. Lifting holy hands, lifting his, his wounded hands before the Father and the holy angels. This is happening in heaven because God's government is open. It's not secretive. Jesus wants his actions to be seen by the entire universe so that all doubt of God will be removed, so that God's methods in healing and restoring will be understood, so that Satan will fully be exposed as a liar and his methods as a source of pain and suffering. So, of course, this is happening before the Father and the holy angels. Of course, it's happening there. But what is actually happening? That's the question. Jesus reveals truth about our hearts and minds that he has healed our characters. And this, finishing the sentence, holds his wounded hands before the Father and the holy angels saying, I know them by name. I have graven them on the palms of my hands. What does this name, what does name represent? He knows us by our healed and restored characters because we have eaten his flesh and drank his blood, metaphorically speaking, meaning we have partaken of his character, thus we are part of him, the body of Christ, and, he's, and we're written metaphorically in his hands because it was... Do you see the beauty? Does it give you chills? 
You see, this isn't legal. This isn't pleading to God to get him to stop uh, from acting in anger to hurt us. Keep going on with the quote. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise, Psalms 51, 17. And to the accuser of his people, he declares, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan, the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a branch plucked from the fire, Zechariah 3, 2. Who's Jesus speaking to here? The accuser. He isn't pleading to the Father to get a judicial ruling or to get God not to lash out in wrath. Keep going with the quote. Christ will clothe his faithful ones with his own righteousness that he may present them to the Father. Glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Their names stand enrolled in the books of of life. And concerning them it is written, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. What's being described? The robe he gives us is a metaphor for character. If Jesus fixed all the damage of sin is caused in our hearts and minds and perfects our characters so that we are, notice, he put, it says and he, that he may present them to his Father. He fixes the damage, heals our hearts and minds, perfects us so that we are capable of living in God's unveiled glory. Thus he presents us to the Father because he's finished his intercessory work and we can stand before God without an intercessor. That's what it means. The work of, in, of the investigative judgment and blotting out of sins is to be accomplished before the second advent of the Lord. Why? Because we must be healed, restored, fixed before the coming of God so that we can actually live in his presence. What happens in the hearts minds of the unhealed sinners when they are exposed to God's infinite life-giving glory? Thus, we have to have this work done in us before that time. Now, this next, next part. Since the dead are to be judged out of the things written in the books, it is impossible that the sins of men should be blotted out until after the judgment at which their cases are to be investigated. Are you, what lens are you using right now? Do you immediately decode that in design law and understand what's happening here? What is written in the books? What's written in the books? Reality. Of? The names are written in the books. Reality of our characters. So our characters, and this is describing the cleansing of the sanctuary. The removal of all residual defects in the hearts, minds, individualities of those who died trusting in Jesus. So that when they arise at the first resurrection of the righteous, they arise sinless and perfect. The thief on the cross who trusted Jesus will not arise with the heart of a thief. Martin Luther, the great reformer, who had anti-Semite issues and alcohol problems, will not rise hating the Jews and craving a drink. And so what you said earlier, part of the investigation, God, there's a judgment going on as the records are open. First judgment, do I have informed consent? Has this person put their life in my hands and asked me to heal and fix their character? Yes, they have. Are there any residual elements that need fixing before the resurrection? Believe in the prodigal son, the father put the robe on him. There you go. So many people want this to be your work. They want you to feel burdened. Now, we have a work with the heart that's renewed to overcome the habits that we built that were out of harmony with God before we gave our heart to Christ. We have to work with Christ to overcome those things. 
But that's only because we have hearts that are new. If your heart wasn't new, you would love the things of the world. Yes. Yes. Read Romans chapter 7. This process, this struggle of the new heart that sometimes does things they don't want to do, and the things they want to do they sometimes don't do, because they have a heart that wants to be perfect for God, but they have a neurobiology that is not regenerated, and they have deeply and bad habit patterns and conditioned responses that come up in certain situations, and they then regret and they're grieving, and they're why did I do that again? I don't want to do that. But some will teach you, you've got you to have all that overcome. No, you have to have a heart that truly desires to be, to be fully healed. And any of that residual stuff, Christ takes care of. And they, that's what he's cleansing a sanctuary, preparing his people. So when we rise, we rise sinless and perfect. He was just saying, though you're making your mistakes, just don't leave. Yes. Oh, man. And now we're about to go to Monday, but we're kind of out of time. <laughs> Let's go ahead and end with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your, for your love and for your kingdom and for the way you've designed your universe to run. We so much long for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you will enable us to see and understand the truth of your kingdom and how it's applied in our lives and that you will empower us to lighten the world so that you can come soon. We ask that you will use the events occurring in the world to turn hearts and minds to the big question and empower your people to give the right answer. We pray in your holy name. Amen.